you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and uh, we're going to talk about the gospel, the gospel, and the Bible says in verse number one, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Bob Woods tells the story of a couple who took their son, who was 11 years old, and their daughter, who was 7 years old, to a place that maybe some of you have been before, Carlsbad Caverns. As always, when the tour reached the deepest point in the cavern, the guide turned off all the lights to dramatize how completely dark and silent it is below the earth's surface. The little girl, age seven, suddenly enveloped in utter darkness, was frightened and began to cry. Immediately was heard the voice of her brother, who said, don't cry, somebody here knows how to turn on the lights. You know, in a, in a real sense, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, we discover that there is sort of the, the darkness of the unknown mysteries of life and death that had sort of overcome the people during this point in time. There was great confusion and angst among, among the people in Paul's day about life after death. Uh, is there life after death? And if so, where is it and what is it and, and how, do we, how do we know where we're going and how do we even know that there is something after this life is complete? And God uses the Apostle Paul and his writing to, in some respects, to turn on the lights and to illuminate the darkness that so many were dealing with as it relates to the unknown of what comes after this life is complete. You know, we often, I feel like we often take for granted this book that we hold in our laps, and, and we fail to realize how confusing and challenging and difficult life would be without this book that helps us to understand who God is and who we are and what happens after this life is complete. The word gospel is found in our, in our, in our, in our opening uh, verses of this text. And the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. And it means a good message or it means good news. And I just have to tell you that in a world that is full of bad news, it's nice, isn't it, to get some good news every once in a while. I was just thinking, and as I was thinking about the meaning of the word gospel and thinking about good news as opposed to bad news, I, um, I, 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 just, I just went online this week, and on, on Thursday of this week, I thought, I'm going to go to a news site, and I'm just going to write down some of the headlines so that we could get an idea of just how often we are bombarded with bad news in our culture, in our society Here's five stories that were just on this past Thursday as it relates to the headlines in the news. Uh, story number one, Wall Street climbs 20% from low as inflation fears ebb. <laughs> well, we're hearing a lot about that, aren't we? Inflation and, and as we're hearing about recession and, and, uh, and, and what, what does the future hold? And so we hear a lot about that. Here's another headline that I discovered on Thursday. Pandemic stress caused 
teen brains to physically age faster. <laughs> I mean, our teens need all the help that they can get, and I don't suppose this, you know, this uh, pandemic did them any favors, right? And, uh, and so the, the study says that during the pandemic, the teen brains, they, they aged faster as they had to deal with all of these things. Here's, here's another headline. Lava from Mauna Loa, less than four miles from Key Highway. Well, I'm glad I don't live where that volcano is. I'll, I'll take a snowstorm any day over the week as opposed to lava floating towards my home and floating towards the highway that I take the most often. Here's another headline. Homeland Security warns of domestic threats to Jewish and migrant communities. And then the final headline that I wrote down, this is not all of them, but the final one that I wrote down was rise in Iranian assassination kidnapping plots alarms Western officials. This was, listen, this was just from Thursday of this last week. Likely next Thursday will feature new stories that threaten more and more bad news. And Paul opens this chapter, what I believe is one of the great chapters in the Bible, with the promise of good news through the message of the gospel. Now I must tell you, I must tell you that the gospel is only good news in the following instances. Number one, the gospel is only good news if it is declared or preached. In other words, for the gospel to be good news, someone, someone must stand and they must declare it. They must tell it. They must preach the gospel. Sometimes people view the preacher as a potential enemy depending on what it is that he's preaching about. Maybe the preacher stands and he introduces his topic or his subject and you think to yourself, here we go again. You know, he's coming after me. He's coming after my little pet thing here, what I like, or he's always preaching about the same thing. And I just want you to know something. The preacher, so long as he's preaching the word of God, so long as he's preaching the gospel, he's the best friend you have. Because the gospel is good news. Think about this. There are people all over this world who do not have a preacher who can preach the gospel to them. No one's ever come to their community. No one's ever come to their home, knocked on their door, introduced them to the good news of the gospel. And so the gospel, if it's going to be good news, it must be declared, it must be preached. But notice, secondly, it must not only be declared and preached, but it must be received. Look what he says. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach. So there's the declaring and there's the preaching unto you. And also ye have received. Ye have received, the gospel is only good news if it is heard and then received by an individual. Paul wrote that he had declared the gospel to them through preaching, and then they in turn had received it. They had accepted it. To receive the gospel, it means to believe in it, believe it, I should say, in your heart. Now Paul writes a word of caution in this passage, doesn't he? The gospel saves unless, he says, it is believed in vain. The word vain in verse number two indicates a belief that does not produce a change in a life. In other words, the Bible teaching is clear that when a person, listen, when a person receives the gospel, it changes their life. It makes, it makes changes, no doubt about it. 
The Bible knows very little, the Bible knows very little about a saved individual who pretty much remains the same after they get saved as opposed to before they got saved. Paul would write in the follow-up letter to this church at Corinth, he would write these words, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Think of the individuals with me in the scriptures who received the gospel and who were changed by the power of the gospel. Think of me of Peter the fisherman, Matthew the tax collector, Nicodemus the Pharisee, Paul the persecutor, Cornelius the centurion, the Ethiopian eunuch, the list could go on and on and on of those who received the gospel and their lives were radically, dramatically transformed and changed. Now listen, no believer is perfect. None of us are perfect. In fact, we're far, far from perfect. But believers should be different after meeting Christ than they were prior to meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. If you find, if you look at your life and you find your life virtually unchanged since you came to Christ, it could mean, it could mean you believed in vain. And can I say that an empty belief an acknowledgement in the head but not in the heart, listen, is, is, is not good news for anybody. Understand that the gospel, it must be declared or preached. That's what we're trying to do here this morning. It must be received. Many of you have received the gospel, but I fear in a room this size, there are some who have never received the gospel. Our prayer today is that you would receive the gospel, that you would believe it with all of your heart, that you would accept it as true. But notice thirdly, it must be not only declared and preached and received, but it must be our foundation. Notice what he says at the end of verse number three, for I del- or verse number Uh, verse number one, uh, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. Wherein ye stand. I want you to know something. The gospel is not just good news for you on the day that you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. There are some people that almost have this approach of, you know, yeah, that's the gospel, and that's for other people. That really doesn't make much of a difference in my life. I want you to know something. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, not only have you received it, but you are standing upon it today. The gospel is our foundation. Some people, some people maybe on Sunday mornings, we, we, try to, we try to plug the gospel in just about every time we preach, but especially on Sunday morning. And I know that there's sometimes an attitude or spirit among Christian believers uh, who maybe wouldn't say this in a verbal sense, but maybe it's in the back of their mind. Well, you know, do we really have to go on Sunday morning? He's just gonna preach the gospel again. Do you ever get tired of hearing good news? You ever get tired of hearing the best news that you've ever heard in your life? That Jesus Christ came and that he died and, and that he rose again and that he's coming back again someday and that that Jesus Christ has the power to save you. Know, listen, the gospel is our foundation. Uh, it is what we stand upon. It is the foundation of everything that is related to the Christian life. Without the gospel, there is no faith. There is no church. There is no eternal hope. There is no comfort in life. There is no purpose in life. I'm reminded of the great hymn we sing from time to time around here. The hymn writer wrote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest 
on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor, my foundation holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. I love this last verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What a great hymn. The gospel is good news if it is our foundation, if it is what we are rooted in, what we are grounded in. And Paul refers to the gospel here. He uses that term. He's saying, listen, I have good news for you, but it's only good news if it is declared. It's only good news if it's received. It's only good news if it's the foundation upon which an individual builds his or her life. But what exactly is the gospel? If the gospel is good news, what does it say? Paul does not leave us wondering. He does not say, I have good news for you, and then he never gives the good news. No, he says, I have good news, and then he tells us exactly what the good news of the gospel is. In the first Corinthians chapter number 15, that's really what it's all about, is Paul declaring the gospel to the church at Corinth. And according to the apostle Paul, who's writing under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he proclaims that the gospel is these following truths. Number one, number one, the gospel, the good news is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. He says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the to the scriptures. The Bible says in Romans 3 and verse number 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23 proclaims all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The human imagination assumes this isn't that big of a deal. I mean, just a little sin here, a little sin there. It can't be that big of a deal. It's not enough to send me to hell, is it? Uh, but the Bible teaches far differently. Romans 6.23 declares the wages of sin is death. It does not differentiate between sin. It just declares that the wages of sin is death. The end of our sin, according to Revelation 21 and verse number 8, is the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Left to myself, listen, left to myself, I can do nothing to deal with my sin problem. And I will eventually, on my own, I will eventually spend eternity in the lake of fire, separated from God. As one hears all of this, they're probably left to wonder, aren't they? Well, then where's the good news? I thought there was good news in this message. Up until this point, there's been nothing but bad news. But let me tell you, the good news is this. The good news is what Paul proclaims, that Christ died for your sins. Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures. The wages of sin is death, but Christ made the payment on my behalf, the Bible says in Romans 5, verses 6 to 9, for when we were yet without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, or, or for in a rare instance, for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward sinners. He's saying, listen, I wasn't righteous when Christ died for me. I wasn't even a good man when Christ died for me. No, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The good news of the gospel is this. Listen, every last one of us are sinners and left to our own, we must die and spend eternity in a place called the lake of fire. But Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. When Abraham Lincoln's body was brought from Washington, D.C. to his native state of Illinois for burial, it passed through Albany, New York and it was carried through the streets for the residents of that town who wished to come and behold the body of their assassinated president. They, they tell the story that a black woman stood upon the curb that day and she lifted her little son as far in the air as she could. She reached a, above the heads of the crowd and, 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 and so, that, so that he could look upon uh, Abraham Lincoln's body and, and she was overheard to say this to him. She said, take a long look, boy. Take a long look. He died for you. He died for you. In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease the boy had already recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance for recovery herself was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. Since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary? The doctor asked. Johnny hesitated. His lower lip began to tremble just a little bit before he finally smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary, pale and thin. Johnny, robust and healthy. Neither spoke a word. But when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile began to fade he watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice, slightly shaky, broke the silence. When he said, Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he had agreed to donate his blood. He thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. In that brief moment, he had made his great decision. Johnny, fortunately, didn't have to die to save his sister. But Jesus, listen, Jesus had to die to save every last one of us. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. But notice, secondly, he goes on to say, not only that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, but verse number four proclaims, and that he was buried. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried the crucifixion was designed to make death as miserable and dreadful as possible. Make no mistake about this. When they took the body of Jesus Christ down from the cross, he was dead. A rumor floated around that the body of Jesus was stolen from the tomb by his disciples. They didn't actually rise from the dead, but his disciples came and they stole his body from the tomb. There were some who also spread a rumor that Christ hadn't actually died 
while on the cross that he had merely fainted. And when he was buried there in that damp, cold tomb, that his spirit revived. I don't know about you, but it's hard to imagine a man who was nailed to a cross for six hours and had a spear thrust into his side to puncture his heart, that that man merely only fainted. He was buried, and this is good news. You know why that's good news? Because when Jesus was buried, listen, your sins and my sins were buried with him. You read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and you'll discover, listen, that our sins are in that tomb still today. They're buried, buried in the depths of the deepest sea, buried with Christ in his tomb. And when he rose from the dead, he left his garments that he had been wrapped in along with your sin and my sin in that tomb. The Bible says in Romans 6, verses 3 to 6, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ We're baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. The gospel, listen, the gospel is good news because Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. It's good news because he was buried in the grave and that our sins were buried with him, but he didn't stay there. Why else is the gospel good news? The gospel is good news, number three, because Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Christ didn't stay in that tomb. He was there for three days. The Bible refers to it as a borrowed tomb. You borrow something because you're only gonna use it for a time. I just need it for a few short days. I'll give it back. I'll give it back. Here's a reminder. If you borrowed something from somebody, make sure you give it back to them. Sometimes we borrow things and we hold on to things way longer than we should. Uh, Every once in a while, we'll be allowing someone to borrow something, and my wife is always quick to write our name on that so they know who to give it back to. The tomb that Jesus used was a borrowed tomb. He was only going to be there for a few short days. The resurrection was quite a hurdle that men had to overcome in their minds. I mean, we've all seen death. We know just how final and how fatal it is. We acknowledge that there is no coming back from death. We understand that. As human beings, when we look upon someone, something that has died, we understand there's there's no coming back from this. Not, Not at least in this life. We understand what death is. Christ, Christ raised some from the dead during his earthly life and ministry. But what could he do now that death had taken its grip on him? Think about that for a moment. The one who had raised the dead was now dead. Certainly all hope was gone. Who's, who's now going to raise him from the dead? Who's going to pr- proclaim to him, roll the stone away? Jesus, come forth. There's no one left who has the power to do such a thing. You can understand why the... Disciples were so filled with dread. This doubt over a literal bodily resurrection not only had overwhelmed the disciples at that point in time, but it had even crept into the church at Corinth. Look, he says in verse number 12, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you? So he's saying there's some among you, there's some in your fellowship that say there is no resurrection of the dead. 
even in the church at Corinth, even in God's church, a church in which Jesus, or Paul refers to them as saints, the church of God, which is at Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, even among them, there was some doubt. Is there really a resurrection? Is there really a, a day in which the bodies are gonna come up out of the tomb and they're going to rise to new life? How can we be sure that Christ rose again and how can we be sure that we too, who die with our faith in Christ, will rise again as well? Here's what the Holy Spirit of God does in this passage. Listen, he addresses it. He talks about it. In some respects, listen, prior to this, we're beneath the earth and the lights have been turned out and none of us can see and we're sort of left to wander because death is the unknown. We don't know what lies beyond this grave. The Holy Spirit of God comes inside of that deep cavern and he turns the light on through the writing of the Apostle Paul and he lets us know, he lets us know what lies beyond this life and what lies beyond the grave. And first of all, he addresses the resurrection of Christ by saying that there were witnesses to his resurrection. In verses five to eight, Paul writes about those who beheld Jesus Christ after his resurrection. He says in verse number five, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's another name for the apostle Peter, then of the 12. After that, he was seen of above, above more than 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. That means some are dead. Verse number seven, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Between Jesus' resurrection in his ascension, there's several days in which Christ appeared to different individuals and different groups. Apostle Paul writes that he was seen by Peter. Then he was seen by the, the, the uh, 12 apostles there in the upper room. And then he was seen by more than 500 people at one specific time. Now some have tried to excuse the resurrection appearances of Christ as mere sort of hallucinations. It's sort of like, well, we, we so desperately want to see him, so we just sort of imagine that he's there. And yet I would tell you that the fact that he appeared to such a large crowd, it's hard to fathom 500 hallucinating at the same time about the exact same thing. Paul indicates about the 500. He said, listen, you don't believe me? Go find some of them. Many of them are still alive. Oh, there's a few that have died, but many of them are still alive. In fact, he said the majority of them are still alive to this day. You have questions? You go talk to them. They'll verify. They'll tell you that they saw Jesus in his resurrected form. The Bible says that Paul wrote, he said he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, Prior to all of this, James was an unbeliever. But after his resurrection, James became a believer and a follower of Christ and one of the writers of the New Testament scriptures. And then he said, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. How do we know that these witnesses really saw him? Well, here's, 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 what, we, here's what we need to do. We, we need to look no further. Look no further than the change that came over them after they had seen him in his resurrected form. Think about the change that came over the Apostle Paul. He talks about it, doesn't he? Look in verse number nine. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number nine. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, then I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, why don't you persecute the church of God anymore? He'd tell you because I saw Jesus. 
Because I saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. That's why I don't persecute the church of God anymore, verse number 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Paul, why do you labor so abundantly? Paul, why do you give yourself so tirelessly to the work of the ministry? He'd tell you, because I saw Jesus after his resurrection. I saw the power and the glory of the resurrected Savior. And that's why I labor night and day, often through much tribulation, through much trial, through much persecution. Why? Because I have seen the resurrected Savior. You see Jesus in his resurrected form, it'll change your life. Peter was changed. Peter was ready to go back to fishing. Peter had denied the Lord. James was an unbeliever. James had grown up with the Lord in his home, and he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was until he saw Jesus, until he saw the nail prints in his hands and in his feet, until he saw the spear that had been plunged into his side. Hey, hey why, why, do you think, why do you think that the resurrection is true? I believe it's true. Number one, because the Bible says it, but number two, because I've seen the power of the risen Savior at work in the lives of sinful men, my own life included. Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We know that because there were witnesses to his resurrection. But then he deals with the doubters of the resurrection. The doubters of his resurrection, really in verses 12 through 19. In the church at Corinth, there were individuals who were uncertain that there was a resurrection as referenced by Paul's writing in verse 12. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, don't miss this. Paul stated in very clear terms what the ramifications would be. Listen, what the ramifications would be if Christ did not rise from the dead. And he spends, he spends seven or eight verses. He basically says, let's suppose for just a moment that's true. Let's suppose for just a moment Jesus didn't come out of that grave Let's suppose that his body is still in the tomb. It is still decaying. It is still deteriorating like every other human body has ever done that we placed in a grave. If that is true, Paul lists the ramifications. What difference does it make if Jesus is still in that tomb? Well, number one, he says this. He says, what we do here today is worthless. Would you look with me in verse number 14? He says, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. You know, I spend a lot of time preparing to preach. I think about it all the time. Lord, where are we going next? Lord, what do you want me to say to this group of people? And just about every message I preach, I spend several hours uh, studying and preparing and trying to figure out, God, what do you have to say uh, through this text to the people that will be there preaching? In, in many respects, it's my life. Some people like like to joke around, they like to say, you know, well, I'm a preacher because I can't do anything else. And that may be a joke for some people. That is, that is the truth when it comes to me. If I couldn't preach, somebody say, well, why don't you go out and why don't you lay down carpet? I can't do that. Why don't you fix toilets? I can't do that either. Why don't you work on cars? I, I, I barely even know how to pop the hood on my car. Why don't, you, why don't you build things? Well, I'm not very good at math and measurements, and I'm afraid that I would strike my thumb with a hammer. I, I, I'd struggle with just about everything, I, I, and some would, even, some would even doubt that I can even preach, but we'll let you decide about that today, right? But here's what he says. He says, listen, if Christ did not come out of that grave, our preaching is in vain. It's worthless. In other words, listen, if Jesus is still dead and buried, then here's what we need to do. Here's what we need to do. We all need to leave here right, right now. We need to go to our cars, and we never need to return. 
Tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, I will call the best realtor in town and we'll list this property for sale. We'll sell off everything that we have. We'll never return. We'll never gather. We'll never sing another hymn. We'll, we'll, never, we'll, we'll, never, we'll never put another dollar in the offering plate. I will never prepare another message to preach because if Jesus Christ is dead, if Jesus didn't rise again, then what we're doing here today is worthless. It's foolishness. Don't, don't you, if Jesus Christ is still dead, don't you have something better to do on Sunday? Now, honestly, the world, sometimes they look at us and they say, don't you have something better to do on Sunday? And we'd say, absolutely not. We're gathering on Sunday to worship the risen Savior. But if he's still dead, then we do have better things to do on Sunday. Go home and rake the leaves. Go home and clean the basement. Go home and clean out the garage. Uh, go shopping. Get your Christmas shopping done. Prepare for the Christmas holiday. You know what? If Jesus Christ is still in the grave, there is no Christmas holiday. What difference does it make that a little baby was born in a manger? Who cares about any of that stuff? If Jesus Christ is still dead, then what we do here today is worthless. Notice, secondly, not only what we do here on a Sunday, every given Sunday is worthless, but our faith is worthless, look in verse number 14, and your faith is also vain. How we rely, don't we, on our faith and our hope during moments of great difficulty. Yesterday I shared with you that I went by to visit with Mrs. Thompson. She was not coherent. She was sleeping, as most folks do, very, very close to death. Her son was there, and so we spent some time chatting with him. I asked him, I said, does your mom have a favorite passage of Scripture? And we all know Pastor Thompson, one of his favorite passages was Romans 8, and so we spent some time reading Romans chapter number 8. And we prayed together. You know, there was, there was sorrow in that room. There's sorrow in this room today because someone we know and someone we loved who made such a difference, and such an impact in our lives is gone. But listen, listen, our faith carries us through these moments, doesn't it? You see, there's hope here. We, 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 we haven't seen the last of Mrs. Faith Thompson, just like we've not seen the last of Roy Thompson, and we've not seen the last of your loved ones who died with their faith in Christ. We're going to see them again. But listen, if Jesus Christ is still in the grave, then our faith is worthless. Everything that we believe it makes no difference. Jesus, if he's still dead, he's an imposter. Everything he claimed is a lie. And faith in him, listen, is a misplaced, foolish faith. Listen, if, we're, if Jesus Christ didn't come out of that grave, not only is what we do here today worthless, our faith is worthless, but notice thirdly, then listen, if Jesus Christ is still in that tomb, then you are still in your sins. Would you look in verse number 17? He says, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. One of the great things about the Christian life is forgiveness. Forgiveness, to know that I'm forgiven. One of the great things about the Christian life is to know that I can, can bring my sins to the Lord and I can confess them to him. And when I do, he is faithful and just to forgive me of all of my sins and to cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness. But if Jesus Christ is still in that tomb, I'm still in my sins. I haven't been forgiven of a single one. I'm still bound by my sinful deeds and my wickedness. The sins that you think you have forgiveness from, those things still hang over your head as they ever did if Christ is still dead and his tomb is still occupied. Listen, he cannot pardon you. He cannot declare you to be righteous and forgiven. He cannot give you a promise of eternal life if he is dead in the grave. Number four, number four, we're talking about consequences if there be no resurrection. If Jesus is still in the tomb, number four, then our loved ones who died with their faith in Christ, they have perished. Would you look in verse number 19? 
Paul writes, if in this life, it's going to be verse number 18, then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. Perished. I don't know about you, but all of these are difficult to deal with, but I, I feel like in some respects this one is especially agonizing. Because how many times have we stood at a graveside, at a funeral home, in a hospital, in a home somewhere, Someone has died and there's sorrow. And one of the things that carries us through is this thought, we're going to see them again. We're going to spend eternity with them. You're going to hear their voice again. They're going to throw their arms around you again and love on you again. All of that, listen, all of that hinges upon the reality of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he's still in that tomb, I can't say that. I can't say that you're ever going to see your loved one again. In fact, Paul says, if he's still in the tomb, then your loved ones who fell asleep with their faith in Christ, they're perished. You'll never see them again. That's what he's saying. They're doomed for all of eternity. They're in a place called the lake of fire. And you will, you will go there someday, but you'll never see them again. Number five, if Christ, if Christ is not risen, Paul says, what's the ramifications? What's the consequences? He says, well, then we are the most miserable people alive. Verse number 19, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now I have to tell you, I've met some miserable Christians. <laughs> I've met some miserable Christians. Sometimes I've been a miserable Christian, but God didn't design the Christian life to be lived in misery. God designed the Christian life to be living with joy, with abundant, exceeding joy that fills our hearts and fills our lives. Sometimes, sometimes we're miserable because of the way we live. Sometimes we're miserable because, but listen, listen, you, you don't ever have to be miserable because Jesus Christ is still in the tomb. Now, that, now that, would, that would be the case. That would be the case if he didn't come out of that tomb. We'd be the most miserable people alive on the planet. That's what he writes. If Jesus Christ is still dead, and everyone that has a smile on their face this morning, your smile will go away and it'll never return. We are of, an all, we are of all men most miserable. We're not just miserable. We're the most miserable people alive on the planet if Jesus Christ is still dead. I think to myself, think about this. If Christ is, is, is not risen, then the hope that we cling to is stolen away from us. We're doomed to death and hell along with everyone else. And think about this. We will have lived our whole lives trying to please a God who is dead. What a waste. What a waste. That I would spend, I would spend my life trying to please a God who is dead just like every other man is dead. It's impossible. What a waste of a life. No wonder he writes, we are of all men most miserable. But Paul does not end there, does he? No, no, Paul gives the ramifications to those who are doubters of the resurrection. But then he says this, would you look with me in verse number 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So understand, there were doubters. Paul makes it abundantly clear, number three, that Christ is risen from the dead. And what does the reality of Christ's resurrection proclaim? Paul claims and indicates that because Christ is risen, these three truths are certain. I want to give them to you. Number one, the first truth is this. Because Jesus Christ is risen, number one, you must know this. That, that, makes, that makes this the truth. That all men, all men are in one of two families. That's what, that's what he says. Look in verse number 21. For since by man came death, 
By man came also the resurrection of the dead. So he's identifying two men here. There's two men. In other words, there are two spiritual families in this world. In this room today, there are two spiritual families. You're either in one or you're in the other. That's what, that's what he's declaring. And the resurrection, the resurrection makes all of the difference. Without the resurrection, then every one of us are in one family. There's no chance we can get into the other family. It's impossible. But with the resurrection being true, with it being a reality, you and I, you and I do not have to stay in the family we were born into. We can be born again into a new family. And so because the resurrection is true, then this is true as well, that every man is in one of two families. Today you are either a member of Adam's family or you are a member of Christ's family. Members of Adam's family will all die But members of Christ's family will all live. Adam's family is alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. While Christ's family is alive spiritually, but also alive physically. Adam's family is of the earth, while Christ's family is of heaven, according to verse number 47. So here's the question, which family are you a member of? I'm not asking you today, what is your last name? All of us have different last names. But the the reality is this. Even though you might have a different last name than me, even though you might have a different skin color than I do, even though you might speak a different language, a different first language than I speak, listen, all of us are part of one of two families. You are either a member of Adam's family or you are a member of Christ's family. To be a member of Adam's family is to be in a place of death. To be a member of Christ's family is to be in a place of life and peace. So here's the question, what family are you a part of? The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us, tells us, listen, there's two families, and everybody's a member of one or the other. If you find yourself today a member of Adam's family, the first man ever created, the man who by him came sin and eventually came death, you don't have to stay there. Jesus wants to make you a part of his family. and And he has the power to do so because he rose from the dead. And if you'll believe on him, if you'll receive the gospel, you can become a part of Christ's family. But notice, notice there's a second great truth because Christ is risen from the dead. Not only all men are in one of two families, but here's the second great truth. that Here, here it is, death's reign will end someday. Amen. Oh, that ought to encourage our hearts. That death's reign is going to end someday. Would you look in verse 24? The Bible says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Notice verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You know, Christ, according to scripture, he defeated death when he arose. But don't you, don't you understand that it certainly still feels as if death is winning today, doesn't it? Oh, it feels like that to me. As a pastor in a church of this size, in a church of this old, I spend a lot of time around dying people. I spend a lot of time around sorrowful people. Sorrow, sorrow that, you know, again, is, is not without hope, but still sorrow nonetheless. And I just have to be very honest with you and very, very frank with you. It, it feels like death is winning. It feels like death is, has gained the victory. Here's why. Because death has been defeated, but it has not yet been destroyed. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. 
Christ defeated death when he came up out of the tomb, but it has not yet been destroyed. As a result, death holds a certain power in our world today. And when death visits us, there is still fear, tears, sorrow, crying, and pain. There is a feeling. I use that term feeling. I put quotes around it. There is a feeling of finality to it, even for those who are born again. But listen, never forget this truth. There is coming a day in which death will forever be destroyed. It is the last enemy, according to scripture, that will be destroyed, but it is going to be destroyed nevertheless. The Bible says in Isaiah 25 and verse number 8, he will swallow up death and victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for the Lord hath spoken it. Revelation 20 and verse number 14 and death and hell and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I'm glad I'm glad that not just the devil's going to the lake of fire, but I'm glad Death's going there as well. Because you know what? When something goes to the lake of fire, it never returns. And one of these days, God's going to bundle up death and he's going to pick it up and he's going to toss it in the lake of fire. And you and I will never have to worry about it or think about it ever again. I'm thankful for the fact that one of these days, death's reign is going to end. The Bible says in Revelation 21 and verse number four, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Because Jesus Christ came out of that tomb, what is true? Here's what's true. All men are in one of two families. Here's what else is true. Death's reign. Death's reign will end someday. Here's what else is true. Number three, our resurrection is guaranteed. Because Jesus came out of that tomb. Listen, the Bible says he became the first fruits of them that slept. Because Jesus came out of the tomb. Guess what? You're coming out of the tomb someday as well. I start to think sometimes about dying and being buried, and I don't like it a whole lot. I don't know why I don't like it. I'm going to be gone. It doesn't matter. I just feel sort of weird. I don't like the thought of them putting my body into a box and lowering it into the ground. I don't like that thought. But I, I, I like it a whole lot more when I realize I'm not staying there. I'm not staying there. One of these days, the Bible says a trumpet is going to sound. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we which are alive and remain. I don't know about you, but I, I want to be one of those that are alive and remain. I, I want to be one of those that are alive and remain. But if I'm not, if I'm not, guess what? My resurrection is guaranteed. And by the way, not just my resurrection is guaranteed. Every man's resurrection is guaranteed. Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul said evil and good people are going to rise. The evil will rise to the resurrection and they'll face judgment and then they'll be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And the good, they're going to rise and they're going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to receive rewards, things done in their body, whether good or whether evil. I'm thankful, I'm thankful that my resurrection is guaranteed. I'm thankful that those cemeteries that hold our dearly departed loved ones, those are just temporary holding places. Those are places that they're there for now but they're not going to be there forever. Because when that trumpet sounds, they're coming up out of that grave. Our resurrection is guaranteed. The Apostle Paul talks about this new body. I don't know about you, but uh, my, my body is a massive disappointment to me most of the time. Massive disappointment. I was in my office earlier today, and I must have grunted as I was standing up. And one of our dear men says, your back okay? And I said, my back feels fine. I'm just always grunting, you know. It's just, it's just part of life, you know. 
It's a massive disappointment. I look in the mirror and I think to myself, my soul, can't we do any better than this? <laughs> can't we do any better than this? I want you to know, I want you to know you may, you may feel that way about your body, but guess what? You're, you're going to have a new body someday. Amen. The Bible says that our new body will be incorrupt, according to verse number 42. That our new body will be glorious. Now, I'm looking forward to that day. I've never been able to say that about my body now that it's glorious, but the day is coming in which I'll be able to look in a mirror and I will be saved. Glorious, look at this, this is glorious. It's never happened, never happened, but the day's coming when it will. Glorious, our new body, our new body will be powerful. Verse 43, it's there. Your new body is gonna be powerful. Your new body is going to be spiritual. My body right now is carnal, it's fleshly. It's of the earth, earthy, the Bible says. According to verse number 44, one of these days, one of these days, this natural body is going to be a spiritual body. That means it's not susceptible to sin and sickness and wickedness and evil. It's not susceptible to death. It's not susceptible to crying and pain and sorrow. No, my new body, my new body, not only is going to be glorious, but it's going to be spiritual. And because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, my resurrection is guaranteed. Fourth element of the gospel, and we'll be done, and I'm just going to touch on it. Here it is, Christ is coming again. Verse 51 through verse number 58, Christ is coming again. Verse 51 says, behold, I show you a mystery, something that had been previously unrevealed, but now Paul is at liberty because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge the Holy Spirit has given to him. He says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. You know what I, you know what I'd love? I'd love for that trumpet to sound this afternoon. You know what that'd mean? That'd mean, that'd mean none of us would ever have to go to the funeral home again. None of us would ever have to go to a hospital again. None of us would ever have to go to a cemetery and pick out a burial plot. None of us would ever have to worry about any of those things. We shall not all sleep. I'm praying that I'm one of those that doesn't have to sleep. I'm praying that I go by way of the rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. I don't know about you, but that's great news. That's great news. I hope I get to experience this. I'm talking about not sleeping and about going up by way of the rapture, but whether I do or I don't does not change, does not change the fact that a day is coming. A day is coming in which a trumpet is going to sound. The dead are going to be raised incorruptible. And those still alive who know Christ will be changed. Verse number 52, his second coming reminds us that death is swallowed up in victory, according to verse number 54, and it exhorts us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So what is the gospel? It's pretty clear, isn't it? The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, and he is coming again someday to receive us. For those who hear this and receive it and make it the foundation of their lives, the gospel is the best news ever. Now, who is God? Who has God put in your path for you to share the gospel with? It's a good thought for us to think. You've all, most of you have already received, not, maybe not all of you, but most of you have already received it, and it's the foundation, it's what you're standing upon. But who has God put in your path to share this good news with them? Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine knowing someone for your whole life and them having the best news imaginable and them never telling you that news? Does that seem like a good friend to you? Does that seem, does that seem like someone who loves you to you? Doesn't seem very loving to me. Who is it that God has put in your path to share the good news of the gospel with? Hey, what about you, friend, that's here today that has never received the gospel? You've never, by faith, believed in your heart that Jesus Christ did what he said he did, that he died for your sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again, and that he's coming again someday. You've never received that. Maybe you've never heard of it, or maybe you have heard it, and you've just not received it yet. Can I invite you? Can I invite you today to be saved, to be gloriously saved, to receive the gospel. Our